You're listening to Renewing Religion, a podcast about worship, social duties, and spirituality featuring an overview of Imam al-Ghazali's Ihya. This podcast is brought to you by Seekers Hub. This Ramadan, our goal is to raise $75,000 in monthly donations to build a global Islamic seminary so that dedicated students all over the world can complete their journeys and become Islamic scholars. You can help them by becoming a monthly donor at seekershub.org slash donate. First, I'd like to thank Sidi uh, Sheikh Faraz and the rest of the team here at Seekers Hub for inviting us once again. Last year we were here during Ramadan as well, so it's always an honor and a pleasure to come back to the uh, GTO, GTA, GTA, Greater Toronto Area. So I understand that you have been going over the books of the Ahya or the chapters of Ahya Ulumidin. And I've been requested to discuss three chapters uh, in this session, chapter 24, 25, and 26. Um, chapter 24 being about Afat al-Lisan, or the, I don't even know how we translated it, uh, holding one's tongue, but looking at kind of the, the vices of the tongue. Um, so we can't read the whole thing word for word, but what I'm going to try to do is at least go through the 20-odd uh, vices that Imam al-Ghazali talks about. And in the beginning, in the introduction about this section, Imam al-Ghazali uh, puts a particular emphasis on the importance of guarding one's tongue, and that the tongue is indeed like a double-edged sword. It can do much good, but it can also do much harm. Because what we say, there's two major things we need to know about what we say. These two major things. One, what we say is significant. It's not insignificant, number one. And number two, it has an effect. It affects other people who are earshot of it, or it can affect people who may not even be in earshot of it by hearsay, Someone might say, well, I heard Fulan say this and this about you, right? And if you actually said that or you disseminated that. Um, so that being the case, then it does have the potential to do a lot of damage. And I should state also that while the pre-modern books like Ahayyulumuddin are talking about things we actually say, like a talafud, we pronounce, uh, obviously that extends to any which way we may communicate something. So that includes not just what we say, but what we write, what we tweet, uh, what we disseminate. And I said last year, and I had some opposition a little bit from some corners, I said also what we retweet, right? What we propagate. We may not have said it, right? We may not have originated it, but if we contribute to its dissemination, then we have a role in whatever that is said or what is retweeted in affecting other people. Uh, and it's significant. And how many are the times that we can count, probably just this year alone, where people's reputation have been completely maligned, if not destroyed, 
based upon something that happened on the social media or something about, you know, along the lines of the Internet. And I think this chapter is particularly important because uh, some of our ulama have, have uh, kind of stated, like Dr. Sherman Jackson and others, there's this type of call-you-out, gotcha culture that we have going on. And many people um, kind of are assuming that somehow that's supported by our Islamic principles, right? If, if someone makes a grievous error, uh, then we need to name and shame, right? We need to kind of, you know, if, if they're caught on camera doing something or saying something or maligning someone or even saying something that's racist or uh, abusive to other people and we catch them on camera, then there's this automatic assumption, name and shame. You know, let's make these people famous, let's put them out on the internet, let's get their photo everywhere so everybody knows who they are. And then, you know, when I see stuff like that, and then my next question is, and, and then what? So what, we know who they are, now what? Is it, we're supposed to completely erase them kind of from humanity because they said something under their breath, even if it was to one of our Muslim sisters that was offensive? Does that fit um, the offense that they can be completely maligned and destroyed, right, and lose their job uh, and publicly humiliated in that sense? So it's a very powerful tool, especially now when we have access to these tools that within you know, depending on how many followers someone may have or other people may have, within a matter of minutes, something can exponentially be spread all to all parts of the globe. And that power, because it's powerful, that power wasn't there 10 years ago, let alone 20 and 30 and 40 and, and, and 50 years ago. So I think it behooves us to be even, even more uh, careful and to take you know, the words of our imams, of our ulama, like Imam al-Ghazali and others, who pondered these issues and studied the Qur'an and Sunnah very closely, and you know, they arrived at sort of this <clears throat> um, articulation of the hikmah, right? the wisdom. And the, and the Qur'an refers to the Sunnah in the Qur'an itself as hikmah, as wisdom. And so everything about our Sunnah is wise, Everything about what the Prophet ﷺ did, the way he acted, his mannerisms, the way he treated people, there was a wisdom about it. Nothing was done in vain. Nothing was haphazard. right? Uh, and so when the Prophet ﷺ would say something, right? when people, you know, one of the Sahaba asked him, you know, are we taken to task by what we say? And he said it like you're reading the hadith, like he's surprised. Are we taken to task about what we actually say? Is that like a big deal? We didn't like hit anybody. We're, we're just saying something. And then the Prophet ﷺ replies back very emphatically, and are people not dragged on their noses or on their faces, two different narrations, to hellfire as a result of what their tongues harvest? So in other words, it does have an effect. right? And the Prophet ﷺ, he talked about Laylat al-Isra' wal-Ma'raj, the night of ascension, and he saw some of the types of punishments people will go through, right? And amongst them were the people who were al-Namam wal-Lamam wal-Mukhtab, the ones who backbite, the ones who slander. You know, they will have punishments that reflect what they did in the dunya. 
So the, think of the dunya, the, the life that we live now, it's kind of representative of something that is more figurative and metaphoric. When we get to the akhirah, those things that are metaphoric will now be literal. So the one who slanders literally will be carrying the weight of his tongue. It will become huge. And he'll have to carry it on his back like it's a, you know, a satchel or a burdensome thing that he has to carry. Why? Because that's exactly what happened in the dunya. Right? And even Surah Al-Hujurat describes, gives us a very physical description of the person who backbites. Right? Would you like to eat the dead flesh of your brother? And one of the hadith that there were two women who were fasting and they started backbiting people and they became very ill. And then they regurgitated, they threw up, and, came, and the hadith says that it came to meat and bones and blood came out. That what they that regurgitated. And the Prophet said, these two were backbiting. So as if it became literalized within them. Because that's how ugly, that's how qabih it is in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Imam al Ghazali here, um, he goes in kind of an order of uh, least worst to the worst. So the one, you know, the, the, the one that is it's bad, but not really bad. And then the last thing he talks about is the one that's really bad. So he says that the first one, is to speak about those things that do not concern you. Right? And we know the hadith. From the good Islam, the good deen of the person, the woman or the man, is to leave that which does not concern one. Right? And then the question will be, well, what is it that concerns me then? Well, the, the sunnah makes tafsir of the Qur'an, and the Qur'an makes tafsir of the sunnah. Right? So when the verse says, لَا خَيْرَ فِي نَجْوَاهُمْ إِلَّا مِنْ أَمَرَ بِصَدَقَةٍ أَوْ مَعْرُوفٍ أَوْ إِصْلَاحٍ بَيْنَ النَّاسِ لَا خَيْرَ فِي نَجْوَاهُمْ There is no good in their najwa, in their private conversations, right? talking about the Quraysh, except for three things. Amra um, bi'ma'ruf. In other words, to enjoin to something that is good, to say, let's teach people, let's do something good, let's do something for humanity, let's do something for our brothers and sisters. Oh, islahin bayn al nas, to rectify between two people or two parties. Right, that's good speech. Let's bring people together. Right? So these are examples of things that would concern us. That means that pretty much everything else is going to fall at least in the category of not concerning us. Um, how many points LeBron James scored during the series with the Oakland, not Oakland, the Golden State Warriors and, and they lost four games to one and what were the statistics and, and things like this, and who are the starting five for the Cavs versus the Warriors? You know, obviously there, there is the, the concept also of what we call istijmam, which is kind of tarwih, a kind of... Uh, you do need to go to less sort of serious times in order to have aid and help for your more serious times. You know, we are, we are human beings, we can't, we can't sort of be very on 
were not angels in that regard. Right? Some of the Sahaba, they complained to the Prophet Sallallahu and they said, you know, when we're with you, we find that we are on. Right? I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But when we go back to our families and our homes and so forth, it's not the same thing. Right? So is this a sign of nifaq? Is this hypocrisy? And even Omar ibn Khattab and Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq were part of this conversation. And the Prophet Sallallahu said, no. He said, if you were to do that, then the angels would have greeted you in the streets as you walk. But some time for this and some time for that. So there is a halal type of uh, taking a break and istijmam and things like this. But the thing that we have to be careful about is that that thing of itself doesn't lead us to falling into something that would be blameworthy, to something that would be either makruh, disliked, reprehensible, or haram. So people want to take a break and watch a little bit of the game and you know, in, in, enjoy the athleticism of the athletes. I'm not going to say that's wrong. Uh, you know, and, you know, athleticism and um, uh, paying attention to one's uh, physical prowess and things like this, that is part of the deen. We can't, we can't deny that. that. That's an important part of the deen. If you're not healthy physically, it's going to be very difficult for you to be healthy spiritually. They kind of go hand in hand. Um, but at the same time, we should recognize that uh, it's very easy to fall into kind of uh, uh, a cycle where these things dominate our thoughts and, and dominate our attention and uh, dominate our time. So it's about indibat, right? It's about kind of trying to do it in a way so that we're not falling into a, a place where we lose sight of what's important. So fudul al-kalam or leaving that which is, doesn't concern one, it's better to err on the side of caution. Right? And just think about the things. The Sahaba used to count the number of words they would say in the day. Right? And I'll bring up social media again because social media gives you um, it makes you feel like whatever you have to say is important. And then it also makes you feel like I need to have an opinion about this thing. Like if you see other people putting their opinions, well, I have more followers than them. I should have an opinion too. right? And I should be getting those likes and comments as well because I have to say what I need to say and so forth. So we have to be very, very careful uh, with that impulse right? and recognize it as an afsani impulse. right? It's an impulse of the nafs. It's an impulse of the ego. It's not something that the deen is going to exhort you to. The deen will tell you that that you have good counsel for the people no matter where it comes from and it doesn't have to be you and actually preferably it shouldn't be you I prefer it not to be me I prefer that it would be someone else right, who can do a better job than I can do it than the way that I can do it so um, avoiding the first one avoiding that which uh, does not concern one you know Imam al-Ghazali he's He's strict in that sense. He'll say, like, where you went on your trip and who you saw and what you did and, you know, how much you paid for the onions at the market are all things that are kind of in the category of not that important, right, of speech that's not that important. And obviously he, he's addressing people who are not from the awam, but he's addressing people who have kind of made a, a commitment to living a more uh, a dedicated life to the prophetic principles and ideals. Um, 
if that's what you want to do, then what it's saying is, if you're going to go that route, then do it all in. Do it the right way, right? Don't just focus on the ritual aspects of the deen, the number of prayers and the number of days that you fast and things like this, and then you neglect what really is, um, you know, the, uh, the important underpinning of the whole thing altogether, which is to avoid those things that the Prophet ﷺ avoided, right, and to avoid the haram and to embody the character of the Prophet ﷺ. How many of the people who um, can boast of their ritual prayers and how many prayers they've done, how many days they've fasted, how much money they've given to sadaqat, and then this comes sort of like emblematic of, well, this is the deen. It's an aspect of the deen. It is even pillars of the deen, but it doesn't mean that that's the measure of, of where one is with their relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, especially if they want to have a committed, sort of dedicated way about, principled way about living their life. These are the things that one has to be aware of. These are the things that separate al-awliya min al-mudda'een. The people who are true awliya and then those who just make claims. You know, these things about them. So move on to the second one. Al-Afathaniya, he calls Fudul al-Kalam. And this is different than the one before it. You know, speaking about something that does not concern one is the first thing. The second thing, Fudul al-Kalam is talk that is um, trivial or repetition of something that's not important. Right? Just like sometimes people just speak so that they can bring people's attention to themselves. They're looking for people's attention. So this is called Fudul al-Kalam. And remember, these are in increasing order. So these are the two least bad ones. As we go to the 3, 4, 5, 6, all the way to 20, they get worse and worse. So I'm going to go with a little bit more uh, speed here in some of them. The third one, Al-Khawd fil-Batil. Wal-Ma'asi. Ka-Hikayat Ahwal al-Nisa wa Majalis al-Khamr wa Muqamat al-Fussaq. This one now is to talk about things that are actually haram to be doing, haram to do, but then you go speak about them, right? So you talk about, um, you know, some type of illicit type of gathering that took place, or, yeah, I couldn't believe that, uh, you know, I saw that roulette wheel on TV, and look at how much money that guy made from the slot machine, and wow, that's interesting, and, uh, or look at, Look at that drunk person and how much of a fool he made out of himself and things like this. So that's talking even a condemning way, but to talk about it in sort of a praiseworthy way is even worse about those things. And I would also include in this that the mushahadat, the things that we see, that we look at, that also depict things that are haram, should also be avoided, right? There's a general principle, they say, everything that is not permissible to uh, speak about. It's also not permissible to look at, to, to engage with. So the images that, that enter us, right, and we think that they're innocuous and we think they don't have an, a more of a, a long-term effect, they do have an effect. They stay with you, especially images, pictures that you see or video, because um, any type of simple reminder will have you recollect them. And as long as they're kind of imprinted on your heart, like Imam Ibn Atta'ala Sekandri, he says, right? You know, how are you going to reach 
a greater understanding of the divine of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the pictures of the forms are imprinted on your heart right they occupy your thoughts your subconscious works uh, continuously and your subconscious can work for you or against you so you may not be actively watching that last movie or listening to that last pop song or rock song but your subconscious may be busy with it. And when your subconscious is busy with it, that means it's not busy with other things. One of the things about creative people is that even when they're not actively doing something creative, their subconscious is helping them do that creative thing. That's why ideas come to them sort of what seem to be spontaneously, but they're not really that spontaneous because in the background, you were working on it to begin with. Right, you know, like if, if we're going to use an example of like software, you have a, an app running in the background, right? So your subconscious is kind of like that app. It's running in the background. So if you have too many other apps open that are nonsense, then they're taking up all of your uh, computer power and your RAM, your memory, and as a result, um, the thing that's in active mode doesn't run that well. Right, the, the app that you're on right now, which is you, as what the things that you're doing, and I would, you know, I would venture to say that um, this is one of the the secrets of dhikr, of the remembrance of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, and it's why it's one of the reasons why the ulama say that it's better to do dhikr with no even uh, hudur, no presence of mind, uh, than to do than not to, to than to avoid dhikr at all. So it's obviously better to have dhikr and you are, have a hudur, you have a presence of mind and heart. But that doesn't preclude, preclude, you, preclude you from doing dhikr even without that. Because that has a benefit as well. So even when the tongue is working, right, it, it's at least getting you on a spiritual level so that even when you're not doing the dhikr actively with your tasbih or reading the Qur'an, then it be, sort of begins to get imprinted upon the conscious of your spirit. Right? And then it's working for you even when you're not actively doing it. And then the adverse is true. Right? When you're working with nonsense things, those things are also working against you even when you are not actively doing them. Right? That's why you know, when people ask, how do I have more of a presence of mind and heart in the prayer? You know, I just get in the prayer and I'm just busy and I, I can't focus and I can't concentrate. The problem is not your prayer. The problem is what you're doing outside of the prayer. When you begin to have hudur, presence outside of the prayer, then you have presence inside of the prayer. Right? Because they feed off one another. If you're going into the prayer and you're busy with a million things that you're thinking about, right? that's why in the Hadith of Bukhari, the Prophet mentioned that uh, the Qudima uh, if the prayer time is upon us, either Maghrib or Isha, or probably most likely Maghrib in this hadith, and the food is ready at the same time, then begin with the food. Why begin with the food? Because that is what's keeping you busy. Right? You'll be not focused in your prayer. So when you go into the prayer, you're not focused on the food. You've at least removed... Uh, the busyness and the lack of focus, at least with the food, right? Prophet ﷺ also, during Ramadan, for example, also in Hadith al-Bukhari, 
he would single out a, a particular space in the rawdah, in, in his masjid, and pray in that space consistently. Why? Because it helps one focus better. So all the things that would lend us to focus more, not just in the prayer, but outside of the prayer, if it leads us to a greater focus, then that thing uh, becomes meritorious in of itself. Imam Malik is recorded to have said, if I knew that sitting on a pile of trash would bring my heart closer to Allah, then I would do it. Then I would do it. Because the point is to bring you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's the whole idea. Um, sometimes a sin brings you closer to Allah. Ibn Atal al-Sakandari said, رُبَمَا عَصَيَةً أَوْرَثَتْ ذُلًّا وَفْتِقَارًا خَيْرٌ مِنْ طَاعَةٍ أَوْرَثَتْ عِزًّا وَاسْتِكْبَارًا Perhaps a sin that breeds within you, that engenders within you humility and a sense of poverty towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, a sense of utter need of Allah is better than ta'a, is better than obedient acts that breed within you arrogance and haughtiness. If it makes you arrogant and it makes you feel like you're better than everybody else and that you feel that you have a, a degree over others, if that's what your ibadah is doing for you, it's having the opposite effect. The effect it should have is to make you more humble. Right? To make you... Uh, more agreeable with people, not more difficult with people, more agreeable, more humble, more easier to get along with, right? The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam praised. He said, the closest people to me on the Day of Judgment will be those the ones closest, the ones who are best in character, the ones who get along with people very easily and people get along very easily with them. And they lower their wing for people. Metaphor, obviously. In other words, they're pliable people. They're not difficult people. They're easy people to get along with, right? He always had a smiling face. He always greeted people with a smiling face. He had that quality about him. So we'll go on to the Afa al Rabi'ah, al Mira' wal Mujadala wal Jidal, fi Dhikr. So here, it would be aimless disputation and arguing about things actually that may in of themselves be haram to argue about and discuss. Right? These are not necessarily things of the deen per se, but these would be things I think much of the, um, the discussion many, many people have about political realities or political situations and things like this. And then people have heated arguments. Well, I think that this country should do this. And, well, are you kidding me? They're doing that. And, you know, it's back and forth. And, Ya Latif, it happens in Ramadan so much, too. Because people, our routines are upended a little bit. And, and we see each other more often. And so there's more of an opportunity for people to start talking about things like that. So you hear in the masjid, people are talking about what this country did and what that country did. And, you know, and so forth. And it gets to, even gets heated and, and disputation. Um, that's uh, that has a, a, a you know a, a damaging effect on the heart, right? You come away with conversations like that after you leave them, you're like, and you feel, you know, con- constricted, right? It's not in shirah, it's diq. 
tadiq, it feels constriction. So avoid those type of things, right? And many of these things, obviously it takes two people to, to engage in it. So many might ask, well, what do you do when someone is talking about things like that? How do you disengage, right? Either you try to change the topic, uh, or sometimes I think, you know, if it, this is a matter of your deen, you could, it's okay to say, you know what, I'd rather talk about something else. Maybe we can think about, talk about something else besides that. You know, maybe we're not going to reach an agreement on this thing you're talking about. Let's talk about something else and, and so forth. You know. And sometimes you just have to walk away. Um, but exhaust the other, uh, the other possibilities first to do it in a kind of nicer way. But if that doesn't work, you know, at the end of the day, we're all responsible for ourselves. So in Af al-Khamasa, or the fifth one, al-Khusuma, وهي أيضا مضمومة في أن تخاصم إنسانا لتستوفي حقا أو مالا and this is to خصومة uh, means to make someone here I guess he means by speech uh, say something about someone so that they become an enemy of you because you felt that they usurped something of your right they have something of yours it could be money it could be something else but then you start speaking about them in a way, right, that doesn't just stop about the fulfillment of that right, but you start talking about other things. And this is very common too, right? Because even, even if you were in a mahkamah, if let's say theoretically you're in a court uh, and they have a judge, you're not allowed to talk about the other things you think are wrong with that person. You have to, you have to be subjective and stick with the case at hand. You had some type of business transaction, and there's a dispute about uh, how much money was put in or not put in or something like that, and, and there's, a diff- there's a, a disagreement, then you stick to that issue. You don't go talk about, well, you know what, this guy, he's three times divorced, and he, you know, I, I heard that he, uh, he beats his kids, and then you tell the judge that. What bearing does that have on what you're talking about right here, Right? And even if, that, if we're going to talk about the idea of credibility and things like this, that would be a separate city. It's not something that should be made public in that sense. But people will do this in, in the court of public opinion all the time, right? And it's an afsani thing, right? People want to feel, like, validated in their opinion about somebody. So if you feel that this person you're already a little bit uh, upset with and then you hear some things that may or may not be true about them, but they confirm and validate the already preconceived opinion you have about them, then we're prone to very quickly falling into believing that. Psychologists call this confirmation bias. So it confirms your already your notion. So then you say, no, it's got to be true, because I know that he did this, so that, all, that other stuff must be true. Whereas in the deen we have this concept called insaf, right? And literally insaf means to put something in two halves. But what it means here is that you exercise your impartiality to the best degree that you can. Okay. I didn't even get through this book yet, but okay. So you, you exercise your impartiality to the best degree that you can so that you don't uh, jump on sort of the, 
the public bandwagon that is, you know, blaming this person and, and assassinating the character of this person because it confirms something that you thought was already to be true about them. Um, and these are, these are very, these are things that are very subtle and they're not easy to pick up on. But consider yourself amongst the people who are blessed if you can recognize those things within yourself. Right? Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab, he said, May Allah bless the person and have mercy on the one who guides me to my mistakes, to my shortcomings, so that I can see my shortcomings. So that's uh, a little bit of flavor of the 24th chapter. I've been told I should move on because there are two other books, right? I'm supposed to do. Um, let me just... I'm not going to explain them. I'm just going to kind of sort just read the, the next 20 real quick, just so you have a, an idea. Um, so we talked the fifth one, uh, the sixth, sixth one, the In other words, trying to talk very poetically and flowerly so that you get people's attention. That's number six. Number seven, cursing and using vulgar language. That's number seven. Number eight, Al-La'an, uh, which is here, um, just a very brief explanation. Al-Fuhsh just means vulgar language. Al-La'an in Arabic means cursing, means to kind of condemn that person to be a damned individual, a cursed individual. And here, Ghazali said, you shouldn't do that with anything, not even with an animal. Right? The woman who cursed her camel, uh, or, you know, subjected the camel to this type of vulgar speech, the Prophet ﷺ rebuked her for doing that, even though it's an animal. Because the animal, in one of the other riwayat, he came and complained to the Prophet ﷺ about the treatment from its owner. So, we have no dhikr that says, لَعَنَطُ ala shaytan. Ghazali says later in this chapter that no one does dhikr about putting cursing on, on the shaytan, on the devil. Even though it's jais, it's permissible. But it's not going to bring you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if, if cursing the devil is not going to bring us closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then why would we curse a human being or an animal or anything like that? Right? We want hidayah. We want guidance for people. Even if we think that they're an oppressor, we want guidance for them. That would be the best outcome, rather than Allah to curse them. Um, so that was number eight. Number nine, he says here, al-ghina uh, wa-shair. Uh, which is a type of, um, here, he has a general principle, that which is of poetry and singing that is good, the good of it is good, and the bad of it is bad. So if the meanings are good, and it's done in a manner, uh, difference of opinion amongst the ulama, in, in terms of the sharia, kind of ruling about certain types of music and singing, but if it falls under those conditions, then the meanings of it that are good, then it's considered to be good. If the meanings are bad, right, and lend to iniquity, and to... Uh, shahawat and, 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 and fulfilling physical appetites, then that would be the bad kind. So that's the criteria uh, in determining it. Number 10, al-mizah, which would be joking too much. Prophet ﷺ did joke with the Sahaba, but joking in a degree where then it could lead to khusuma. Um, it could lead to uh, people getting upset with one another. Number 11,
Are we supposed to do the next two or the next? Oh, just the next one. How much time we have? Oh. Okay. So maybe in another session when I come back here, we'll go through the rest of them. Uh, inshallah. So I'm going to move on to the next book, which is talking about the uh, vice of hiqad and hasad and ghadab, which is the vice of enmity and rancor and anger. Um, so in this chapter, Imam Ghazali talks a little bit about what is the basis for enmity and rancor, which is anger. That's what that brings about. And there's also a basis for anger to begin with. Why do people get angry? What, what drives them to become angry? It's a nafsani component, right? Imam Ghazali, he roughly divides the shahawat or the, the desires of the human beings into two major broad categories. So there are things that are called shahawat or appetites on the one side, and that could include physical appetites, even sexual appetites. And then on the other side is al-ghadab, which is anger. And both of them are linked to the very basic component of our humanity, which is survival. We need to survive. It's, it's in our DNA, so to speak, that we have to make sure we live. So the physical appetite, for example, you need to eat and drink to live. You go X number of days without water or something, you, you're in danger of not living after that. Um, sexual appetites, if that's not exercised, then the, the species, the human species, is in danger of not continuing. That's why they're ingrained within us. Then what about anger? Well, anger is there because it deals with external threats to your survival. Right? There's a finite number of resources on the planet, and uh, we may get the notion that if there's a finite number, then we somehow need to compete for them. Right? And even if you look at, like, transactional things between human beings. Probably the most common transactional thing between human beings that happens every day, right, millions, maybe in billions of times, is buying and selling, people exchanging goods and services. And the fuqaha, they said that, that buying and selling is predicated on sort of, uh, it's contentious by definition. Why is it contentious by definition? Because the person who is selling wants to get the most money for it. And the person who is buying wants to pay the least. So obviously, there is a conflict there right away. Because if the person who is selling had his way, he would sell it for as much as he could, right? Without consideration for the person who is buying. And if the person who is buying, if he get it for free, he'd take it for free. So there is a contentious aspect to it. Right. Uh, furthermore, if you extend that to all of our transactions, right, all of our interactions with one another, we can perceive someone else's attitude or interaction with us as being some type of threat. Right. In other words, I need to survive. So not just your physical survival, but also your, let's say, meaningful survival. Right. Like what? Your honor, your reputation. 
because as human beings, it's not just about the physical aspect, we also uh, put a lot of value in our reputations and what we call an honor, an irt, right? And this is one of actually one of the five objectives of the higher objectives of the Sharia or Maqasid al-Sharia. They mentioned that to protect people's honor, to preserve people's honor is important, right? Because that really is part of what defines you, right? Or maybe the most important aspect that defines you out beyond the physical aspect. You know, who are you as a person? Are you an honorable person or a dishonorable person? Your reputation. So if people perceive that there's a threat to that, that will also make them angry, right? But that anger could be justified and it can be unjustified. So people like Imam al-Ghazali, who were the ulama of suluk and tazkiyah, they said that the unjustified way, or the unjustified variant, is when it's a perceived slight, not so much of your honor, but of your ego. So your ego was slighted, not your honor was slighted. What does the ego want? Well, the ego wants to feel important. Uh, the nafs, that is, and it wants to feel it's entitled to certain things. It's deserving of certain things. So, if I feel someone is not recognizing that which is I am deserving of, it's going to make me angry, right? If you're driving along Tompkin Road over here and someone comes out of nowhere and cuts you off, it makes you angry. Why? That's my lane. Right? That's my way that you cut off. You just took my right. Right? That made me angry. And so, if this is allowed to persist and fester, right, and you see it not just as a one-time threat to that, then it can develop into hiqad, enmity. Right? And then even a different variety of that is hasad. Right? And that's also very ego-driven. Because hasad is, basically, you want something um, disagreeable and distasteful to happen to the person who's in mahsud, the one who's the object of your hasad. If you only want what they have, that's called ghibta, right? That's called envy in a sense, but not, not, not the deplorable envy. Unless it's something that you want of theirs that it's haram to have to begin with. But if you have something of theirs that they have, and you'd like to have something like it, right? They have knowledge, they have um, even wealth, but they, you know, they use it to build roads and bridges and wells and schools. And, and you say, well, if I had that, I'd do the same thing too. That's called ghibta, right? And the Prophet ﷺ, he said, لا حسد إلا فثنين. There's no hasad except in two things. And he didn't mean the literal Bad type of hasad, he means ghibta, as the ulama call it, the good type. And he said that's a person who has been given knowledge and he teaches, or a person who has been given wealth and he disseminates his wealth. You can have ghibta for that. But if you seek the status and prestige associated even with those two things, right, then that's blameworthy. If on top of that, you seek those things and you want it to go away from the person who is the object of your envy, then it becomes hasad. Right? You want zawal in ni'mah. You want to see that thing that that other person has, you want it to go away from them. Right? That's a very violent. Uh, we're going to have time for question and answer or just. Okay. 
that's a very violent attitude to have, right? You really, you want something bad to happen to them. You want injury to come to them. And that is what the Hasid does to the Mahsud. So I'm going to go skip a little bit in here um, and read some of this. So the way to treat all of this to begin with, hasad, jealous, jealousy, and enmity, is look at the root of it. And as we said, the root of it is ghadab, anger. That means treat your anger. If you can treat the anger, then you can fix the other things that come as a result of it. So, Imam Ghazali has a very famous thing he says throughout the Ahiyat when he talks about al-mu'alaja or ilaj. He literally uses the same word that you would use to treat like a physical malady, physical sickness. So this ilaj or mu'alaja, he said it's mamzuj bayn al-ilmi wal-amal. It's a combination. What is the treatment or what is the medicine? There is a knowledge component to it and then there's a practical component to them. And if you do the knowledge and the practical component, then you can treat the malady uh, of anger that underlies a lot of these vices, especially in our attitudes towards other people. So he says, um, بيان علاج الغضب عندي هيجانه وذلك بأمور منها أن يعلم ثواب قذم الغيظ كما سبق ثم يخوف نفسه بعقاب الله. The first thing to know is that yes, anger is part of who we are and it comes about, but there is a great reward and it's extremely praiseworthy to have what's called قذم الغيظ, which is to suppress one's anger, right? And suppression and refraining from things. It's not very popular to do things like that anymore. We live in a culture now, and we have to recognize this, that uh, it's a culture that tells us that these feelings you have inside of you, your muyul in Arabic, that which you lean towards, they define you. It's who you are. That's what the culture tells you. And that's not true. They do not define you. Right? If we were to accept that, then we'd have to accept the idea that people can never change. And then we'd have to accept the idea that what's the point of having a deen, right, if I am defined by whatever feelings I have inside of me and there's nothing I can do about them and they are what they are. Then why have a deen? Why have principles? Why have values? If all that I am is just the sum of the feelings that I have inside of me or how I feel about things. But deen is suluk, right? The deen is behavior and its morals and its ethics and its principles and it means that you subject yourself right to to the criteria of these morals and these principles and if you don't line up right then what do you do you change yourself that's what deen is about it's really about change what do you think ramadan is about why are we here why are we fasting and why are we getting hungry and thirsty and you know fasting 18 19 hours a day for 29 and 30 days straight and breaking up our sleep patterns, and all of these things. What is it about? It's about breaking us down, right? It's about tajreed, emptying our cups, so that then they can be ready to be filled with ma'ani, with beauty, with prophetic sunnah, with prophetic principles, so that we can change. We can be something 
better than we are. You can be the best version of yourself. Everybody has the best version of themselves. And not, anybody, not everybody has reached that best version. And it's our hope that we reach that best virgin, virgin of ourselves upon our last breath. This is what they call husnul khitam. Husnul khitam is to die in the best of states. What, what does that mean? To die and you are the best version of yourself that you were during your whole life. It's a journey, right? And the journey is about change. The journey is about not accepting just this is what I am and who I am, right? And not that these feelings define me. So when we say suppression, we say refraining, right? Hold back your anger. Yes, hold back your anger. Bite your tongue, right? As mothers used to say 20, 30, 40 years ago, maybe not so much anymore. Now they send them to the quiet corner of the room or something. Or what do they call it? Uh, time out. But um, no, people say, no, bite your tongue. Don't say that. Don't do this. So suppressing anger is, is, is part of it. And, and realizing there's a great reward in that, to do that. Um, there's also a tawheed aspect of it. And this is the ilm part. Because part of what brings about anger is that you have an objection to what Allah has decreed in a particular thing. Really, that's at the bottom line, is that's what it is. You are objecting, okay, why, why does this person, you know, have all this attention and everybody watch his YouTube videos and gets like a thousand views in an hour and I get like three. Well, I wish I had what he had and he's not that smart anyway. He doesn't know that much anyway. You know, it should be me and not him. At the heart of that, there's also an objection to what Allah has decreed for that person, what Allah has decreed for you person, right? This is taqla lil mashia. This is what Allah has decreed. So why are you objecting to something Allah has willed for you and for that person? So there's an aspect where your tawheed, it has to be reoriented, right? And we can get in a long discussion about it, but definitely uh, one of the higher maqams is called al-rida bil-qadā, to be content and pleased with that which Allah has decreed for you. And if you allow yourself to become angry, especially when it's something about your own personal circumstances, then this will have a damaging effect, not just upon your behavior, but on your iman. So, there's much more to say, but I think we're going to stop here for now. Inshallah, as Maghrib is rapidly approaching, وأن يبارك لنا في هذه الأيام والليالي المباركة العشر الأواخر من رمضان وما تقبل منا إنك للسميع العليم تبع لنا تتواب الرحيم وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وصحبه أجمعين. Thank you for listening to this Seekers Hub podcast. To listen to the rest of our shows, please visit seekershub.fm. You can also subscribe to our weekly email newsletter called Compass where we'll send the best of Seekers Hub's content straight to your inbox every single week. To get on the list, visit seekershub.org slash compass.